the free for all roundtable round one on round one, let's say good morning to Tamara Cherry from Pickup Communications, uh, journalist, co-founder of The Line, an online magazine. Matt Gurney is here. Mark Tui, advisor to business and political leaders, is present as well. And you're in for Jerry Agar this week. And, I well, am. In particular today. Okay. How, a lot of meaty things that you're looking forward all, to? The, all the best topics okay. from 9 to noon, right here, right now. Well, well not right now, in an hour. Everybody who listens and all of our panelists are political wonks, so let's spend a tiny bit time on a by-election. It's happening in Mississauga. It's largely regarded as a liberal stronghold, and Charles Souza, the former finance minister at Queen's Park, is running for the liberals. Um, but, you know, Matt Gurney, let me start with you on this one. People always say that a by-election is meaningless until they win one. <laughs> well, for, I guess because I'm never going to contest one, I can be intellectually consistent and say they don't matter. Um, I think what I will be curious to see about this is only what the actual numbers are. If we see a big conservative gain sort of off what they would normally get, maybe that tells us something interesting here. I think also if, if the liberals uh, dramatically underperform, that could tell us something interesting here. But this isn't, uh, you've already said this, like this is generally speaking a conservative uh, dead zone. It's been a liberal stronghold for three decades. I think in three decades, the conservatives have held the seat for four years and every other time uh, it's been contested. It's been liberal. So I don't want to read too much into this, but, you know, I'll be watching. It's it's part of the job. I'll keep an eye on this here. I would be surprised if we came out of this with much to talk about, though. No, Okay. Mark Tui, your thoughts? I think the Liberal Party of Canada and Justin Trudeau have done a brilliant piece of political spin mastering. I mean, normally by-elections are considered to be a litmus test on the government. This is sort of a thumbs up, thumbs down from the electorate on how they, what they think of the Trudeau government. And they have turned this by-election 180 degrees on its head. So the media are talking about, well, this is the first test of Pierre Polyev and the (laughs) The Conservatives are not going to win this. The Conservatives were never going to win this election. And yet uh, most of the mainstream media is talking about, well, this will tell us whether Polyev is loved. No, it's not going to do anything of the sort. Yeah, well, Tamara Cherry, it reminds me of uh, the Kabuki show after a leader's debate where everybody comes running out and says, my guy won. Um, you know, if, <laughs> if the conservatives were to steal this riding today, then everybody would say, that's it, Justin's drawn, uh, done, Pierre is ascendant. I don't know about that. And I honestly, like, I, I actually, I the, the news stories that I've been reading leading up to this, first of all, I haven't read a lot of news stories until this past weekend, even though I've been following the by-election because I follow the, uh, the Peel Regional Police, former Toronto police officer, Ron Chisner, on social media, um, who's, who's running under uh, Paul Liev's camp. Um, but I just, I mean, it, we're so far out from when Paul Liev will actually be tested that i think i'm leaning more towards uh matt's comments and that i don't think we're going to have a lot to talk about coming out of this but maybe we will because maybe Poliev's, you know new war chest of gazillions of members of the conservative party will will show what what is to come in the years to come 
Uh, speaking of all things political, our brand new midday host from noon to 2 p.m. is Vashi Capellos, and she's got quite the guest today. The Premier of Alberta is going to be joining her. That's Daniel mm. Smith. And that's on the heels of the province having uh, passed this new Sovereignty Act. So perhaps the Premier can explain how it works. It reminds me of the mayor's special powers. It's, <laughs> you know, you grant yourself special powers and then insist you will never actually use them. Unless, of course, you don't do what you're told, in which case, crack. Yeah. So um, Iran executing a second prisoner and um, Tamara Cherry, it just in, it should be noted that Canada, I think, has the second biggest uh, external population of ex people of Iranian descent and people who have are refugees from Iran since the revolution. Uh, so there's an awful lot of interest domestically. But also, it's such a sophisticated country, and you want to see it get out from under the jackboot of the mullahs. And yet, mm -hmm. if they keep hanging people, I don't know that it, this revolution is going to amount to anything. I mean... Our... <laughs> It, I, um, my heart is just with the people of Iran. My, my heart is with uh, Iranian Canadians, um, of which I, I, I had a conversation with a couple a couple weeks ago, and I know the um, helplessness, but also hope that so many people are holding on to during these times. Um, of course, we knew that this was not going to be clean. It was not going to be easy, but I, I really hope, and I'm holding on to that hope too, that that the Iranian people who have been fighting so hard for so long and, and so much, especially of late, um, will come up out as as winners to the extent that we can, you know, give them that title in this. And Mark Tui, there's a brutishness to this because the people are arrested, tried and executed, sometimes within days. I don't know if you've seen the heartbreaking video of this, the first guy who was executed last uh, Thursday and somebody emerging from the prison to tell his mother about it and she breaks down. It's, uh, it's They're prepared to do anything. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but look, this is what brutal dictatorships do and that is essentially mm -hmm. what this is not a dictatorship it's a you know it's run by the the religious extremists but what it you know my perspective on this is is really to look at the the crowds of people in Iran that have gone out onto the streets to protest and to just marvel at the bravery and the guts that that exhibits. I mean, we we protest in Canada now and then when you know petty little rights are and we're taking away castles. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. and I'm happy mm -hmm. that we do that because if you don't if you don't argue over the little things, then eventually you don't have little things anymore, and it's only the big things. But my God, the fortitude of the people of Iran who went into the streets, who continue to do that, knowing full well that they could quite readily and easily be executed summarily is uh, is awe-inspiring. Matt Gurney? Yeah, I think it just uh, to pick up on something, John, you had said, and also that, that Mark was alluding to, there is something particularly horrifying about an execution. And I've been following these protests pretty closely. I, I have been watching them. We have seen these kinds of protests in Iran in recent years, and they've always been crushed. And this time, the regime is reaching for all the usual tools and all the usual tactics, and it's not working. And I don't think the regime knows what to do about that. I've been horrified 
Die, the, the footage of um, of people with birdshot uh, wounds, which is shotgun rounds that are non well less lethal, and they're designed yeah. to maim and to injure, but not to kill. We've heard the reports of uh, heavy machine gun fire, uh, particularly in areas with ethnic minorities. The regime trying to take care of a few problems at once, but there uh, for all that violence, for all that mass violence, I still think there's something even more upsetting about taking a single individual and then using the full power of the state to destroy them. And I think there's an intimidation factor there. But I will say this, it's not working. The protests are continuing and they're spreading. Okay, I don't want to sound like everybody's grandfather, but I'm not a gamer. A friend of mine who is said if you don't start gaming by the age of like 45, you probably won't. Has anybody on this panel actually played Fortnite? Not me. No. I played it once with no. my son, and I couldn't really understand it. So I think that was, I don't know what the exact tipping over point was, but it was sometime around then. Okay. Well, Matt, is your son addicted to it? No. He, he played it a bit, and he liked it, but he like he does really like games. He does uh, play a lot of computer games. Fortnite for him was sort of like, hey, that was fun. I'm glad I tried it. And then he went back to playing NHL. Okay, but, uh, you know, Mark Tui, there's now a class action uh, lawsuit that has been certified where they're going to try to prove that the game is addictive and it's designed to be addictive. And so parents of kids who have been ensnared are deserving of some form of compensation. Yeah, it's, uh, I, you know, my first gut reaction is it's absolutely ridiculous to sue a game company for that. However, when I think about it a little bit, People have sued and won against uh, tobacco companies yep. on the mm -hmm. allegation and the evidence that they intentionally made their product more addictive. Likewise, uh, there were lawsuits against, uh, I think it was the makers of 7-Up, when it was found that they were putting nicotine or caffeine or something into the product in, with the intention that it would become uh, more addictive. Uh, you know, So this type of a lawsuit where if you argue and you can substantiate that they've made changes to the coding and the gameplay specifically to make it more addictive, maybe they have a case. The only question mm -hmm. then is, what's the what's the cost? Like, wh what's the harm? And there are in-game purchases in all of these games. That's where the real money is. And uh, that could be interesting. I do think there might be a role for government to step in or the courts to step in and sort of say, look, you need to be better at how you manage purchasing in these games. Because if, like I was talking on the radio last week, you know, somehow my credit card has been associated with my son's games and he buys things that I don't know about. Not a lot, mm -hmm. but that's one of the allegations in this case is that these kids using their parents' credit cards have racked up hundreds of dollars in bills. So there's a real cost there. To yeah, but, uh, yeah, but I think that the more concerning thing is the fact that, I mean, what this lawsuit is alleging is that this, this game maker, they worked you know, hand in hand with psychologists to find ways to construct this game in 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 such a way that, you know, we're spiking the kids dopamine levels over and over again so that they will just want to play and play and play and in turn pay and pay and pay. Listen, I am uh, I don't see anything frivolous at all about lawsuits like this. I'm also I've also been closely watching what's going on with laws similar well, not totally similar, but, you know, lawsuits against um, uh, Instagram, uh, in which they're saying that, you know, the social media platform knowingly was, you know, creating this social media platform that kids were getting addicted to and depressed by and killing themselves over and all of that. I am I am really hoping that lawsuits like this, I'm not so worried about the parents' money. I want to make sure that 
um, gaming companies, social media platforms are held to account in terms of creating projects that are actually safe for our kids. I've got a four-year-old, six-year-old, and eight-year-old. My eight-year-old is all about Minecraft right now. He wants to get into gaming. And and so far, all we will really get let him get into is our old, um, my husband's, what is it, an, an NES in the basement, or we've got our N64 out now from way back, because I am terrified by the addictive nature of some of what's being created today. Yeah, introduce him to Wordle, he'll never play again. <laughs> um, Elon Musk wants to increase Twitter's character limit to 4,000. Matt Gurney, you have worked as an editor in a newspaper, you're now working online, but um, 4,000 words or 4,000 characters is a lot longer than I want to spend on Twitter. Yeah, and I think one of the challenges Musk is running into here, look, I think we've all had the frustration, all of us who tweet of kind of going, oh man, if only I had 281 characters, I wouldn't have to go back and edit this this perfectly crafted snarky sentence. But <laughs> I, at a certain point, you're not, you're not talking about a social media platform, you're talking about a blogging platform, and I don't know exactly when that point is. Like, I don't pretend that there's a perfect number of characters here, and I guess we can, we can tinker with it here. But uh, yeah, I just th I think at a certain point, if I want to read blog posts by many, many thousands of people, well, you know what? I can't finish that sentence. I don't want to read blog posts by many thousands of people. Like, I'm just not interested in doing that. The advantage of, of Twitter is speed and brevity. And it's a point where it can point, it's a place where you can be pointed in the direction of longer stuff. I'm not a reflexive guy who just bashes everything Musk does, but I have to admit, this is the latest in one of his decisions that I just don't really understand. Okay, Mark Tui, as one person observed, the point of Twitter was you had to be concise. If I wanted to read badly written essays from random people, I'd be on Facebook. <laughs> no, I think that hits the nail on the head. Twi the, the, the mission of Twitter was to be concise, pointed, and somewhat provocative, and be able to go through a whole bunch of uh, people's thoughts on different things very quickly. The longer you make it, the further you get away from that mission, and the further you get away from the mission, the less likelihood it's going to succeed. It becomes a different product. We don't know what that product is. I'm not sure that Elon Musk yet knows what that product is. Certainly, he hasn't shared it with the world. Okay, a little McLuhan action there, as a matter of fact. Tamara Cherry, Matt Gurney, Mark Tui, thank you very much. Catch the roundtable, round one at 745, round two at 845. Weekday mornings on More in the Morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.